Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. This week, I have two cool segments about the letter H. It's more interesting than you think. And we're now live with Grammarpalooza, the new way you can directly support my work and get text messages from me. I'm sending fun language facts you want to share with your friends, behind-the-scenes glimpses into how I make the show, and a convenient link to the podcast and transcript. The first two weeks are free, and you can sign up at joinsubtext.com slash grammar. That's joinsubtext.com slash grammar. It's in the show notes, and I'll put it in my email newsletter and on my social channels, too. And now, on to the show. Here's a listener question. Hi, Grammar Girl. I have a question. It's about the letter H and how it gets pronounced. Sometimes... People drop the letter H, like when they say human, they say it human. Sometimes they especially emphasize the letter H, like the word what, they would say as what. What's up with that, and what's the correct way to do it? Thanks. Thanks for the question. Well, I have had this next segment from the conversation on my radar for a while and decided to move it up because although it's about whether we should call the letter H or H, it also talks about why people drop the H sound at the beginning of words. It's written by Kate Burridge and Catherine McBride, who, as you will be able to tell, are from outside the United States. Like Dr. Seuss's star belly sneeches and plain belly sneeches, there are two types of creatures, haters with H on their eighth letter name and haters with none upon theirs. And as Dr. Seuss might say, that H isn't so big, it's really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But it does. The tiny H on the letter name H divides the nation. The pronunciation has become something of a social password, a spoken shibboleth distinguishing in-groupers from out-groupers. Those with social clout set the standards for what's in and what's out. No H has the stamp of approval. In Seussian terms, the best kind of people are people without. Shibboleths die hard. The opprobrium attached to the H pronunciation probably derives from its long association with Irish Catholic education. There's no real evidence for this mind, as Sue Butler points out, but never let facts get in the way of a good shibboleth. H'er's reactions are often visceral. Someone once reported to us that an encounter with H is like an encounter with fire ants. We've no doubt that psychophysiological testing would show that H can raise goosebumps. Linguistic pinpricks are established early on in the acquisition process. Don't say H. And they arouse emotions like other childhood reprimands, including swear words. The story of the weakly articulated H is murkily entwined with the story of its name. Long gone from Old English words like ring, ring, Haneka, neck, and hlud, loud, it would have disappeared entirely if writing hadn't thrown out a life jacket. It was once usual for speakers to drop aspirates at the beginning of words. In fact, up until the 1700s, it was fashionable to do so. But a spelling-obsessed 18th century stigmatized the loss of many consonants, including H. 
R-less pronunciations of arm and car, arm and ka, might have snuck under the radar, but H-dropping fell well and truly from grace. In 1873, Thomas Lawrence Kington Oliphant wrote about this revolting habit in his chapter Good and Bad English, advising, quote, Few things will the English youth find in afterlife more profitable than the right use of the aforesaid letter, unquote. And so the English youth restored H to words like hat, and even at the start of many French words like humble, which had entered English H-less. The Romans pronounced their H's, but the French dropped theirs. Spellers who weren't quite sure whether or not to include H added a few extras along the way. Umble pie, a pie made from entrails called umbles, turned into humble pie. There's an ironic wrinkle to this story. The name H might be a sign of high education in some circles, but is itself an example of H-dropping. Deriving from medieval French ash or axe, hatchet and hashtag or relatives, it also arrived in England H-less, like umble and herb. It's a curious letter name, being, as the Oxford English Dictionary describes, so remote from any connection with the sound. In fact, there's solid evidence supporting H is the better option. To understand why, we need to appreciate the primacy of initial letter sounds in words. English speakers find it easiest to attest to and manipulate the beginning sounds of words. For example, it's easier for us, orally that is, by sound, not spelling, to take away the B sound in beat to make it eat, or to replace the B with a P to make it peat, than it is to take away the T sound in beat to make it B, or to replace the K to make it beak. It's more natural for us to focus on initial sounds, especially for children. We often make use of alliteration in names and tongue twisters. Dr. Seuss, think Aunt Annie's Alligator or The Butter Battle Book. Walt Disney, such as Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. And J.K. Rowling, Godric Gryffindor, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin. All those authors capitalized on this phenomenon. Tongue twisters highlight the special quality of alliteration for learning as well. Who can forget Peter Piper and his pickled peppers, Silly Sally and her sheep, or Betty Botter and her butter? Many letters of the alphabet are phonetically iconic. Their names represent the sound they make. In places where letter names are learned before letters sounds, such as Australia and the U.S., these letter names can facilitate children in learning letter sounds and ultimately word reading. The letter sounds that are easiest to remember are those that begin with their corresponding letter, such as B, D, J, K, P, or T. Research shows it's more difficult to learn sounds made by letters that end with their letter sound, such as F, L, and M. Those that have no correspondences to the letter sounds are the most difficult. Logically, W should make the D sound or change its name to Wubblewoo. Whatever your visceral reaction to pronouncing H one way or the other, H has definite benefits for letter sound learning. 
So it's not surprising it's taking off in some parts of the English-speaking world. When the letter H is pronounced beginning with the letter sound it makes, children have an easier time learning its correspondence as they learn to read. Dr. Seuss implicitly understood this. We suggest that a follow-up primer for young readers will one day include Horton hearing a H. That segment was written by Kate Burridge, a professor of linguistics at Monash University, and Catherine McBride, a professor of psychology at Chinese University of Hong Kong. It originally appeared on The Conversation and appears here through a Creative Commons license. And if you're interested in where we get the name shibboleth for a word that shows someone is part of a group, I covered that back in 2021 in episode 852. Finally, thank you for the question, and you may have noticed that the segment didn't answer your question exactly about why people sometimes pronounce the word what like it has an H at the beginning, like what. So I have more about that. First, you certainly aren't the only person to notice this pronunciation. There's a popular scene in the TV show The Family Guy in which Stewie pronounces Cool Whip with an H to annoy Brian. Ooh, you got some pie, eh? Can I have a piece? Uh, sure. Ooh, let me have some of that Cool Whip. What'd you say? You can't have a pie without Cool Whip. Cool Whip? Cool Whip, yeah. You mean Cool Whip? Yeah, Cool Whip. Cool Whip. Cool Whip. Cool Whip. Cool Whip. You're saying it weird. Why are you putting so much emphasis on the H? What are you talking about? I'm just saying it. Cool whip. According to the Family Guy fan wiki, Stuart pronouncing things strangely is a running gag in the show. And in the same episode, Meg has Brian tied to a chair and then says, we're going to be here for a while. And later says, Brian, you're acting weird. The word what did originally have an H at the beginning in Old English. And you may remember from our episode about discourse markers how the old epic poem Beowulf begins with the word what that's used to call attention, H-W-A-T, like the word bro in especially modern translations. But the same is true of the regular questioning form of what, as in what will you do? It also started with an H. Even though the spelling dropped the H, people still mostly pronounced it until the late 1700s when it started going away. Linguists call this dropping of formerly pronounced H's the wine-wine merger, wine, W-I-N-E, and wine, W-H-I-N-E, because when people stop pronouncing the H, these two words sound the same. They've merged. But the merger wasn't complete. The WH pronunciations still exist in some regions, like Scotland and part of Ireland, and among white speakers in the southern, especially southeastern, United States, with pockets elsewhere. I got really excited when I found a cool 150-page master's dissertation all about the wine-wine merger by Keiko Bridwell from the University of South Carolina. It had an extensive background section and included a small study that found people who use the H pronunciation in the South are most likely to be older, to be rural residents, to be people who didn't attend any more school after high school, and to be men. It seems that what pronunciation is pretty widely viewed as old-fashioned, 
And there was a pretty big cutoff where people who were born before 1960 or so were much more likely to use the WH pronunciation than people born after. It's funny, though, because some older people are quite vocal that the WH pronunciations like what are correct. And there was a smaller subset of highly educated middle-aged people in this study who used the what pronunciation. Historically in the United States, in the 1940s, people viewed as cultured speakers were more likely to use the WH pronunciation. So for some people, it seems they may have internalized the idea that the what pronunciation has higher status, and they use it because they're trying to show that they're correct or well-educated. And some people do describe the pronunciation as sounding pretentious, which is very unusual. It's not common at all to have a pronunciation that is largely associated with rural, less educated Southern people, and that is also thought of, in some cases, as pretentious. As they might say on The Family Guy, it's a weird one. Okay, so that kind of describes what happened, but why did people stop using the H sound? That's harder to answer. Often, change happens because the new pronunciation is easier to say. But the Bridwell thesis had this fascinating bit about function words and how people can change the way they pronounce them without even realizing it. Remember, function words are things that don't carry a lot of meaning, like prepositions and articles, as opposed to content words that carry a lot of meaning, like tree and confetti. And for the purposes of this study, they called what a function word. So it says the pronunciations of function words can change in any context without losing meaning. Quote, as an extreme example, the phrase, what are you doing, can be reduced to chadoin without confusing the listener, unquote. And this is where it gets fun. After they explained the purpose of the study, several participants expressed surprise that they didn't always use the WH pronunciation. They thought they did. And they were also surprised that people around them were using it less than in past years. They didn't even notice that people weren't pronouncing it that way anymore. So that was probably more than you ever thought there was to know about the letter H. But thanks for the question, because it turned out to be really interesting. Finally, I have a familect story from Susan. As you'll be able to tell from the intro, this came in a while ago. I've been getting the shows written and produced earlier than normal lately, which makes everyone's life easier on the team, but then sometimes by the time I get calls into the show, they reference things in the past. Still, it's a great story. Hi, Grammar Girl. This is Susan in Washington State. Since we are in the middle of gift-giving season... This is possibly a timely introduction to a familect that came down from our paternal grandfather in the early part of the 1900s. An acquaintance of his, a Dr. Barkhouse, was known to many as someone who would greatly admire gifts he had given to others. For example, when he entered a home, especially when other people were around, he would glance over at a vase on a side table and exclaim, My Mrs. Kaufman! What a beautiful piece that is. The lady of the house would look perplexed and reply, Why, Dr. Barkhouse, you gave us that vase. That is called barkhousing. It can be used as a verb to barkhouse 
or even a noun, a barkhauser. Though barkhousing is a concept familiar to many people, there is no equivalent word expressing that in the English language or maybe in any other language as far as that goes. It is quite serviceable when appropriate situations arise, and I would imagine most people are familiar with someone who barkhouses and who deserves good-natured contempt. Now you have a word for that. Thank you. I love your podcast and have listened for years. Bye. That's a wonderful story, Susan. I can't say I've ever known anyone who barkhouses, but if I did, I'm sure this word would come in handy. Thanks for the call. If you want to share the story of your familect, your family dialect, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 833214-GIRL. It's in the show notes, and be sure to tell me the story behind your familect, because that's always the best part. And now, if you're part of Grammar Palooza, you can also text me voice messages with your familect, which I think is easier, and it's a fabulous way to support the show. I really appreciate every Grammar Paloozian. To join, visit joinsubtext.com slash grammar, or text hello to 917-540-0876. I'll put both in the show notes. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sims, marketing associate, Davina Tomlin, ad operations specialist, Morgan Christensen, digital operations specialist, Holly Hutchings, director of podcasts, Brandon Getches, and marketing assistant, Cameron Lacey, whose parents named her after the character Cameron in the 1999 movie, 10 Things I Hate About You, which I have to say is one of my favorite movies. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. 